Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A Living History Production. I'm Peter Hart. And I'm Gary Bain. And together we're Pete and Gary's Military History Podcast. Hello, hello, hello. And here we are again. Here we are again, Gary. Here we are, here we are, here we are. It w- seems just five minutes since we were doing this before. It does. It seems only a few days ago. Now, um, we've got something special today. Special, 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 special. Start as you mean to go on. Ah, oh, old teeth. <laughs> we've had this conversation about this horse. Yeah. Right. What are we doing today? Well, this is a special, as you've struggled to say, and today it's uh, Ray Ellis of the South Knots Hussars. And this is the first of several that will follow his career during the Second World War. Why? Why are we doing specials on Ray Ellis? Well, we thought that it would be really good to uh, to get some podcasts where we actually put Ray's recordings from the Imperial War Museum into the podcast. So you can actually hear his voice telling his story. Because he was, de- he was pop- a popular figure in that whole series of, what, nine, ten podcasts we did about the South Nazis. He was. And and there you read him, usually. <laughs> yes. Would you like to give us an example of your Rayleigh's voice? Aye, I didn't know much about the army. Brilliant. Well, we're, we're, we're not doing any readings here. This is all about Ray Ellis. He was a wonderful man uh, and, uh, and a pleasure to interview. Um, now, uh, to, to let's, can, let, tell us a bit about his background, Gary. Well, we said this before, obviously, in the podcast, but just as a little recap, Ray Ellis was born in Arnold on the 17th of March, 1920, over 100 years ago now. He was the son of a school teacher who then changed his career to work as a a poor relief officer for the Board of Guardians. Now, he had a couple of uh, older brothers, George and Rupert. Uh, I think George served with him in the South Nazis, and a younger sister called Kathleen. Uh, They had a pretty strict Church of England upbringing, uh, you know, steady, uh, disciplined standards enforced, that kind of thing, you know. Um, Education at the local public school? Well, it was at local school, yes, certainly. But not, <laughs> it was public. Uh, yeah, <laughs> anyone uh, could go to it. He was not a great pupil. He he was often bored at school. He was a bit of a daydreamer, I think. Pete. Sounds like you, mate. And he left school at the age of fourteen. Yeah. So you know, it, uh, his father doesn't seem to have been that bothered about what he did. He works in various jobs: um, junior clerk in the, the health department, Knox County Council. Got bored. 
couple of years, worked as a trainee engineer for his uncle's firm, engineering firm. Didn't like it, didn't fit in. In those days, you could change jobs, couldn't you? And that's very different. It's, remember in the 60s, 70s, sorry, Gary. In the 70s, you could change jobs, couldn't you? You could. I mean, in those days, you could leave a job on a Friday and start a new one on a Monday. And actually, given his age, I think that's perfectly acceptable for him to do. He's just trying to find his way in life. Yeah, he worked as a furniture salesman and he was good at that. Why do you think he was good at that? Well, he was good because he was described as, as a little like me, Pete, having a uh, honeyed tongue. The only reason you've got honeyed tongue is your diet. And my porridge with honey on. <laughs> that would be it. Um, and uh, now his father had been in the, uh, he'd been in the Royal Garrison Artillery and he'd served on a 12-inch gun. Now, we, we, uh, one of our first specials was on someone who served on a 12-inch gun, uh, a big uh, bangy thing. Who was that? Uh, that was Cleave, wasn't it? That's it, Montague Cleave, yeah. Yeah, these are railway guns, aren't they? That's yeah. that's the point. Yeah, these are big, big guns. Big, bangy things. Now, he, he used to play um, soldiers as a boy, didn't he? Which, you know, it's a little like me when I was uh, when I was in the army. When I was a soldier, I used to play boys. You used to play with boys? Oh, yeah, sorry. That, that by the no, way, that's even worse. I think, I think you need to backtrack from yes, that. Yes, that's even worse. I was a boy soldier, Pete. Yeah, that's right. Now, uh, Rayalis, uh, now, what, uh, we, we've been through much of this material, uh, uh, thing, but we, we, well, we're not going to follow Ray by telling what the South Lots are doing, because you can listen to our podcast. Yeah. This is all about Ray. So he, he's, And if you are going to listen, I mean, it, it is actually podcast number one. If you want to start with right. where, where do you find the South Knots is ours podcast, start with number one. Uh, now, uh, Rayalis was recruited in uh, around about so September 1938, and he joined B Troop 425 Battery 107 Regiment. That's the South Knots Hussars at Derby Road Drill Hall. Now, uh, here is... By 1938, it had got to the point that everybody knew that something was going to happen, and all patriotic young men, and a good many of them, felt they should do something. Everybody joined something, whether it was the fire service or ARP or something. And so I thought about joining. I thought about joining the, I think I thought about joining the fleet air arm at one time, the Navy and the Air Force, but I didn't know very much about Air Forces and Navies. And come to think of it, I didn't know very much about the Army because the only regiment I knew apart from the Guards, which everyone knew about, the Coldstream Guards and the Grenadier Guards and so on, but the only thing regiment I seemed to know about was the Sherwood Foresters. I didn't tell my parents that I was going to join the Territorial Army. I did this off my own butt because I think they would have tried to dissuade me. And so I went down one evening to Nottingham to join the Territorial Army um, as an infantry soldier and I was going to join the Sherwood Forest. But anyway, when I got to the drill hall, there was a sign which was to change my whole life, really. A simple sign that was hanging there, a very colourful thing which said, South Knots Hussars. South Knots Hussars, I thought. It sounded good. I didn't quite know what a Hussar was. I knew he rode a horse. So, and I knew I couldn't ride a horse. So I wondered if that would be, you know, if that would be some sort of detriment to me. Strangely enough, no one asked whether I could ride a horse. <laughs> Not surprisingly, of course, because um, they were no longer horse. But anyway, it was Royal Artillery. And so I joined, on the, just on the strength of that sign and the fact that it sounded very good, I joined the South Knots Hussars. Now, what do you think about that? What do you think about that? What do you well, think about that? It, rather oddly, nobody asked me if I could ride a horse either. <laughs> <laughs> I 
think of that poor horse. But I'm also, like... I didn't know what a hussar was. If you remember when we first started this, um, I had to ask you what's a hussar. Yes. Um, yeah. So I also the... had to ask you where South Knots was. Yeah. <laughs> now, so that's how uh, Rayalis was sworn in, and that's how he became a South Knots hussar. Now, the training process. It can be quite painful for a young man, can't it? Because it can be boring and you can be being taught things by people who are stupider than you. Uh, a bit like... <laughs> what have you taught me lately, Pete? I've taught you very little. We were taken to an 18-pounder gun that was standing there and a sergeant came along, a little group of us, remember, and he said, this is the 18-pounder gun. <laughs> and he started to tell us what it was. He started with things like, this is the trail, this is the carriage, this is the breech, this, and he went round the whole gun and gave the name for each part of the gun, of which, of course, we remembered absolutely nothing. I don't think he was an expert teacher. So that, there, there you are, 18-pounder, that's the 18-pounder, that's... Uh, well, the Mark IV, uh, that's a great war gun, isn't it, Pete? It is. It's uh, the standard field artillery piece of, of, of the, the Great War. Um, now, um, uh, th- 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 now let, what, so one of the great things about the TA is the social aspect, of it, isn't it? I mean, lots and lots of young men gathered together uh, enjoying the things that young men do. Fred and I, on that first night, then went out. We went to a pub at the top of Derby Road called the Sabalus Warren. I think he was an, an admiral, I think, was one. This was the name of the pub. And we went in there and had a drink, and that was the beginning of our friendship. Every time we went to the drill hall, Fred and I would go, yes, I did drink a lot. It was the end thing in those days. Um, to be part of the scene, you had to have your hair sleeked back with brill cream. You had to have baggy trousers. You had to smoke with a nonchalant air, very nonchalant, cool, and you had to drink and you had to be able to hold your beer. And yes, I drank, by my standards today, I drank quite a lot, yes, and I could um, really hold my own with beer and been drinking for quite a long time by then. My father was quite worried about the amount of beer I was consuming, but I enjoyed it. Now, uh, does that remind you of anything? Uh yeah, I mean, um, with the exception of the brill cream, I had the baggy trousers. Uh, I used to smoke with a nonchalant air and somebody would shout, two's up because they wanted to share it. And we did drink. We were 16, 17 years old, but we, we did used to go down to the pub and drink quite a bit. And there was a culture in the army of that sort of thing. But it did build those friendships, those special friendships that last to this day. And uh, could you hold your beer? No. <laughs> Some would say I still can't. Just go and have a word with Janet. Uh, now, <laughs> now, so they, they start learning their 18-pound gun drill. And uh, this is quite a thing. They, they, they start to move into proper training. We learned gun drill with blank rounds. Running around the gun, limber up, and all the usual sort of gun drill that did take post, action right, rear limber up, and round the drill hold banging dummy rounds into the gun and basic in the first early days basic gun drill number one was the sergeant he was in charge of the gun i think on the 18 pound and number two put on the range and he also operated the breech number three as always was the gun layer just at the line of the gun on the angle of sight number four was the loader and five and six were ammunition numbers they brought the ammunition from the limber or wherever it was stored and put on any corrections on the fuses. Now, uh, 
Do you think someone like Ellis was able to master gun drill? Uh, I mean, it's a repetitive action. Do you, it or, is, but you've got to be careful. I mean, one of the things that the we did in the army, we used to um, run with these sort of telegraph uh, poles uh, because you're trying to teach you coordination. You would need absolute coordination on a gun, wouldn't you? You've got and, to get it right. And some of it's quite skilled. A gun layer is quite a skilled business. And, and, and Ray Ellis takes to this. He becomes a gun layer quite, quite early on. Now, in uh, July 1939, oh, what could be going to happen soon? Uh, they off go, go off for their annual camp at Reedsdale. And there's a great story from Ray that reminds both of us of ourselves in the way we respond to temptation. I think we left about 11 o'clock at night by train and we'd all met previously and I remember getting on the train worse the wear for drink with more bottles and uh, it must have been somewhere around one o'clock when we all fell into a drunken sleep on the train and the following morning I mentioned because it really was my initiation into soldiering because we arrived at Reedsdale on a cold damp misty morning at something like about five o'clock as far as I remember and we detrained and got on a, a lorry and took us up to the camp. And it was wet and cold and misty. And there were some bell tents. And I thought, oh, thank God, now for a lovely sleep. And the next thing we heard was, I'm prayed. And we said, aren't we going to sleep? The bloody day hasn't started yet. And to my horror, I realised I'd got to do a day's work. And I was absolutely, I got a hangover and I was tired. Uh, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? <laughs> I, I love that story. It's just so much like it just is life as it's lived. Now they're they're really excited because they get to fire the guns for the first time. And um they'd done a, quite a lot of what was called dry training up to this point, but now they get to fire the eighteen pounders for the first time. We went up onto the moors, actually fired the guns, and this was really something, to hear a gun go off for the first time. And it's the crack of it, but the uh, I, I remember I was the, a gun layer. I'd learned to lay, and I'd got my layer's badge. Very proudly had an L in a laurel wreath on my arm. And to actually take down the get the fire orders and put on the angles on the dial sight and the sight clinometer and two guns and, and bring the graticule in line with the gun aiming point and um, hand on the doing report ready and then some to fire and then you for the first time in your life you pull back the firing lever and this terrific crack and the gun bounces back and the smoke and the smell of cordite and you become a gunner. What a moment that must have been. Yeah, I mean... Wow, the noise, the smoke, the smell, you know, for the first time. And of course, once you start firing these big guns, you've got to be careful some of the some of the side effects. I, I believe that you uh, once referred to, to one of them as uh, gunneria. <laughs> yes. Well, a lot of them were deaf when I interviewed them. Yeah, gunneria. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to call the book that, the South Dutchess book. Which, oh, was um, you allowed to? Yeah, no. <laughs> now, at the, at the end of the first week of the... It's a two-week period, and at the end of the first week, they go off to... Uh, at uh, Reedsdale Camp, they go off to Whitley Bay on their holidays, but Gunnar Ray Ellis is left behind. And this is another fantastic story. And what happens is he meets the archetypal regimental sergeant major. Regimental sergeant major, Porter. But I was a very smart soldier, at least I thought I was. And marching up and down outside the guardroom at Reedsdale, no guardsman was ever smarter than I on that day. 
my gun was crashing down and coming up to the support and I was marching now very proud of myself and um, I noticed the RSM was coming down the road and he stopped to watch me for a while and I really put on my good show and I, then he walked over as I thought to congratulate me on my smartness and I remember his words forever he said boy do you know what you look like no, sir. He said, you look like a bag of shit tied up ugly. Smarten yourself up. And with that, he walked away. And that was a, a salutary lesson, <laughs> which I never forgot. I obviously thought this boy needs taking down a peg or two, and uh, he did it. Good old Porter. I liked him. Now, does, yes. that, does that story bring anything to mind, Gary? Absolutely. You'd, you'd spend hours and hours and hours working on your boots, and uh, in my case, platoon sergeant pick them up, throw them out the window. So, you know, uh, you can imagine the, the uh, regimental sergeant major saying, you know, yeah, no, you look like a bag of shit. And, uh, I have to say that you do look like a bag of shit, tied up ugly. Yeah, thank you. And uh, obviously, uh, I uh, I try very hard to mimic you. <laughs> you, you followed my... Uh, now, now um, interestingly, when I was in the army, we, we too went for a holiday. We went to Tenby. Tenby, uh, that's a firing range, isn't it? Yeah, went that. We did parasending, we did uh, um, sailing, uh, and it was basically a holiday. Now um, they get back, and of course, you know that's it's not long then until uh, until the war breaks out in September, and just a day or so before Ray Ellis is mobilised to the drill hall. At, at nineteen, going off, you don't realise what's going through your parents' mind, and therefore you don't react to it because you can't. No, you're too young, too immature to know. Now, uh, oh, I mean, that's just... Well, you don't, none of, none you, of us think of our parents, no, do we? No, you don't. You just don't. I remember conversations with my parents at the time and, and, and you just don't think of anything other than what you want to do and why you want to do it. Uh, you just... Well, my children are like that now and uh, how, you, you, and I'll not ask about your children. No, mine, mine aren't. <laughs> mine are very thoughtful. Thoughtful. Yeah. Right, uh, where, where are they billeted? We're billeted at uh, the Western Tennis Club, Woolerton in Nottingham. So that's where B, B Trooper billeted. Uh, and uh, they go for long route marches. Do they not uh, play tennis then? No, they go for long route marches. You'd have enjoyed a long route march. We set off with our full kit and boots. And the thing to remember is that at this period, we were not accustomed to wearing army boots. We were used to wearing shoes and it's a big change to wearing boots and to walk long distances and then we've got to get your feet acclimatised. Well, we'd set off on this particular route march with an officer marching smartly in front, but he was not wearing boots, of course, he was wearing shoes. We were wearing field service marching order, but he was wearing nothing. We had full kit and boots and he was wearing a Sam Brown and that was it, and a pair of light shoes and brogues. And... So I make this point because we walked along, we marched quite a long distance, I can't remember how far, when we passed a parked car in which sat another officer, and these two changed. And so we now had a fresh young officer wearing shoes. So we got to toughen you up, you know. And this happened, I think, three or four times. We changed officer. We got back with our feet all bleeding and sore. And, and they told us that um, you have to be toughened up. You never know what might lie in store for you. And we thought at the time, isn't it going to lie in store for you as well? it's necessary for us to do this, surely you ought to be doing it. It rankled at the time. It was very much us and them. They were definitely a pole apart and they were the men who gave the orders, appeared on parade very smartly and we... There was no sort of relationship that I remember. What do you think of that story? 
Well, yeah, I mean, he's got a point, hasn't he? You know, the officers have got to do the same as them. So if they've got to be toughened up, why are the officers not? Now, that's one thing that had changed in your time, because I think the modern army, that isn't the case. Officers will do the same training as the men. Would you agree on that? Yeah, I would agree entirely with that. And in some cases, the the distinction between officer and men has been muddied a bit now. But don't forget, this is a TA regiment. You know, so these officers, um, you know, they're they're, uh, often got other careers. So maybe they didn't think of others quite so much as they did later. Absolutely. Now, the the the, 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 the regiment, 107th RHA, they're going to be one of three artillery regiments. We're not going into a lot of detail, but three artillery regiments supporting 1st Cavalry Division, the only cavalry division left in the British Army. And they'd form up in Yorkshire and Lincolnshire before being deployed as a garrison force in Palestine. Um, so it's not long before they move from uh, from Nottingham to Rillington, and that's that's still in September. And B Troop are then billeted at West Napton Hall. The officers lived in the hall, and we lived in the cow shed in a loft, which le- the the roof leaked. And come to think of it, it was a veritable death trap. If there had been a fire, we'd all have been burnt to death because all you could do, you could get in, was up a ladder and through a trap door into this loft. And down below was all the hay and straw of the for the for the animals. And we were up in this loft here, and that would be B Troop, but with no fire precautions at all. Didn't even have a bucket of water or a bucket of sun. We'd lie there smoking. Nobody thought about it. That that military attitude to danger, you know, the danger of smoking in a dangerous environment. Uh, Ring any bells? Yeah, I mean, you uh, <laughs> you don't think it's dangerous. You just want your fag, don't you? And uh, we've mentioned in Gallipoli before that the unfortunate incident of, we think, uh, a junior rank going in uh, and lighting a fag where the explosives were. Explosives and petrol yeah. were, were being prepared for dem- uh, for detonation just yeah. before the evacuation, yeah. And um, uh, now, uh, the, the, so uh, let, what were conditions like? Well, let, let's, let, let's talk about it. Um, uh, one of the interesting things is uh, is about the food. It seemed to me that they all picked the dirtiest, scruffiest man of the least intelligence to be the, the cook. He had no idea how to prepare food. And for some unknown reason, instead of the food for beetroot being cooked at West Napton, which could have been done quite easily, it was cooked at Rillington and then put on the back of a, an open truck and brought about seven or eight miles in a Dixie, so that by the time we got it, it was cold, of course. Your egg and beans and bacon or whatever it was, was cold and congealed. The quality of the food was all right. It was just so badly prepared and presented that uh, it was appalling. It really was appalling. We were young and hungry and fit, and we ate it all right, but we moaned about it, we complained about it, because it really was appalling. Now, this with this made me think um, when you were in the army uh, I, I mean I've seen some of your reports Gary uh, they're, they're, they're meant to be confidential but uh, Janet showed me one of them and it said would make a good cook how do you respond to that uh, yes I think uh, you're referring to my slovenliness and your uh, general appearance uh, my, stupid yes uh, my experience of the cooks was somewhat different. I really enjoyed uh, army food. I, 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 but then, you know, I don't ever complain, as you know. You don't, you don't, you don't. But, um, yeah, my, my choice was cook or padre. Uh, they, they, they said I could be either. Very similar. Very, Very similar. similar. Feeding the soul yeah. rather than the, the man. And, uh, and lots of sausages. 
Yeah, but well, both did like a sausage. Moving rapidly on, uh, well, well, what do you think conditions were like overall? We were living in such filthy conditions. Blankets, of course, were never ever washed. Where they came from or who'd had them before, we never knew. And um, we were living in the most filthy conditions and there was no proper facilities for washing. And so, not surprising, we got pitigo. It was quite common, and you were horrified in case you got it because you know it was a nasty thing to have. It was disfiguring. Now, not a lot had changed when I was in the army. We we lived in uh, a, a place called Deep Cut. We was in barracks, and and it had been condemned several times. Alma Barracks, I think, is a housing estate now. But um, you know, it was in terrible condition, uh, and and we had the the rare privilege of having to pay for it. And, so it's not unusual for, for soldiers to have poor living conditions, poor and filthy. And, and in Patago, it's not the only thing. Escape, there are outbreaks, escapees, all sort of things. Uh, now, how did soldiers react? We thought at the time that this was soldiering and had to be accepted as such. It was absolutely unnecessary at the time in 1939. There shouldn't have been, shouldn't have been like this at all. It was ridiculous. But we thought, oh, we're soldiers now. This is what soldiers do. And we, did, we accepted it without any demur at all. It was ridiculous. The way we were treated, really, as, as soldiers in 1939 was appalling. And I do feel that our officers have a lot to answer for. They didn't care. I would think that our officers didn't care, quite honestly. They didn't, they didn't, didn't occur to them. There was a big gulf, and we were just then. It, it, there, was, there was still a lot of First World War feeling about it. Now, that's interesting. What, what, what do you think? Well, we never complained. So, you know, it, it's a Keep bit surprising. It's a bit surprising. <laughs> you never complained. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit surprising he's having a bit of a pop at the officers. Cause, uh, you, know, you, normally, you never complained about no, the officers. No, I, I never met a soldier who ever complained. We usually just sucked it up and got on with it. Your officers often took a personal interest in you as well, didn't they? Yeah, they did. <laughs> I think you're referring to officers who um, uh, perhaps are pugilists. <laughs> Beat you to a pulp. Um, now, uh, so there, there they are. They're... They're at uh, they're at Rillington. Uh, what are they training on? What are they training on? Just they've just got one eighteen pounder gun. It's and we remember from the podcast. Uh, just drill purposes. Yeah, they're not allowed to fire. Not to be fired. <laughs> <laughs> they then moved to Rugby in November nineteen thirty nine. So where are they billeted this time? Well, they're billeted in uh, Holton Cum Beckering, lovely place. Yeah. Uh, now the training continues there as they're getting ready for the planned deployment to Palestine with the First Cavalry Division. But before they leave, they're visited by uh, one of the Boer War officers. Had a church parade and Colonel Lancelot Rolston came. I remember him well. It was a bitterly cold day, bitterly cold, and those biting frosty mornings with a fog or a mist, really biting day. And after the church parade, we stood on a what was the school playground then, and old Rolston, he must have been well in his 80s then, and with no great coat, he stood and addressed us before we went. A great old man. And it was there where we first heard the words, once a huzzah, always a huzzah. Wow. Once a huzzah, always a huzzah. <laughs> always a huzzah. Yeah, and, and perhaps, you know, this, that would be a point where you could use your uh, uh, British officer's voice. <laughs> uh, Standard British officer voice. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so they're getting ready to go, and I, I think that must have been an amazing moment. And uh, I know uh, Ellis uh, was was moved by it. 
Uh, when do they go for Palestine? Go to Palestine then. Well, they leave on the 19th of January, 1940. And, and again, in the podcast, we talk about the convoluted journey that they... They go via on. France, don't they? They do, yeah. <laughs> then through the Mediterranean. The people of rugby have been very... We marched out of rugby to catch the train about midnight, I think, on the 19th of January. And we're marching along this icy road and it was difficult to keep your feet with all your equipment and rifles and ammunition and field kit bags and we're sliding about trying to march. And I remember... As we marched along the road, somewhere near the church, I heard a woman say, God help them, they don't know what they're going to. I often thought about it. I don't know who she was, but I often thought about that. Often, no, we didn't. So, Gary, they're off to war. Off, off to, to war. war. Do you think they're ready for it? Yeah, they're highly trained and ready. I'm not so sure. Nor am I. Let's find out next time when they'll be in Palestine. Well, I hope you've enjoyed this. Uh, if you want to know more, then obviously listen to the podcast, the South Not Cesar's podcast. Uh, the, the, first, the very first podcast we did was on, on this period. And the other thing you could do is read a book. What book would you recommend to read about this, Gary? Well, any book on the South Not Cesar's, Pete, but uh, perhaps most tellingly, at close range by a certain Peter Hart. He's lovely, that Peter Hart. I've always said he, he's a man who knows what he's doing. Oh, yeah, you're the only one that does say that. Oh. Cheers, Gary. Cheers, Pete. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Thanks for listening. Follow us on Twitter and Facebook to learn more about each episode. And if you'd like to support the podcast, you have a couple of options. You can buy us a coffee at buymeacoffee forward slash 
PGMH or consider subscribing to the podcast for only £2 per month and get ad-free listening and bonus content. You can find links for both on our Facebook and Twitter accounts. Sounds great, doesn't it?